Chapter Five of Things Seen in Florence by Elizabeth Grierson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In Street and Market. If we really wish to catch the spirit of any foreign town or city, we must cultivate the gentle art of loitering. Otherwise, we will lose a great deal that is quite as much or even more worth seeing than the stereotype sights of the place. In order to gain this insight into Florentine life, we must leave such thoroughfares as the Via Calzaioli or the Via Tornabuoni, which are the Bond Street and the Regent Street of the city, and wander into the network of narrower streets and alleys which lie south of the Duomo, between the Bargello and Sante Croce, and in the region known as the Oltrano, which lies across the river. We are fortunate, for instance, if we chance to be living in any of the pensions overlooking the Arno near the Ponte della Grazia, for this is one of the bridges which forms an easy means of approach to the many barocci, or country carts, which come into the city from the country in the early morning. If we have travelled straight from France or Switzerland, and have had no previous experience of Tuscan life, the rumble of the first barocchio which chances to pass under our windows on the morning after our arrival in florence is an epoch-making sound for it is our introduction to a certain atmosphere which cannot be described but which unless we are very unimaginative will always rise up in our minds whenever we think of italy to begin with we cannot stay in bed when we hear it for the rumble has accompaniments a tinkle of bells a cracking of a whip and certain strange uncouth cries which sound so mysterious in the dawning light that we are forced to get up and look out into the street then we see passing below us a long curiously shaped cart perilously balanced on two wheels it is drawn by three animals apparently of the equine species but not of the same size and it is piled up with a pyramid of great glass jars half buried in straw Beside the equipage walks the driver, a slim, agile figure with a soft, black, broad-brimmed hat, while from the near shaft hangs a lighted lantern, bobbing up and down like a will-o'-the-wisp. Later in the morning we will have plenty of opportunity to examine a barocchio at close quarters, for there will be numbers of them standing around by the Via de Neri and the Loggia del Grano. And it is worth while to do so, for the barocchio, like the barca or river-boat, is a relic of the past, when all the merchandise of the city had to be conveyed backwards and forwards by road or water. It is always fashioned in exactly the same manner, out of seven kinds of wood, beech for the shafts, cypress for the floor, acacia for the drag, ilex for the spokes of the wheels, walnut for the knaves and fellows, and so on, so that in spite of its somewhat ramshackle appearance, the barocchio is rather a valuable adjunct to a farm, over the making of which much time and trouble has been spent. These carts are very light, being composed only of a floor and a framework, and it is amazing to see the numbers of flagons of wine or jars of oil which can be piled upon them, and brought in safety over miles of rough road, with nothing but a little straw between the layers of bottles to prevent vibration. Under the cart hangs, apex downwards, a triangular arrangement of strong wooden spars, which just clears the ground when the barocchio is in motion, 
but which rests upon it when the horses are unyoked, thus forming a third support, and so preventing the cart from tipping either backwards or forwards. Within this triangle a basket is hung, which forms a convenient receptacle for any sundries the driver desires to carry with him. The lantern hangs here also when it is not in use. The gubbia, or team of animals, which draw the baroccio, is worth studying. Sometimes it is composed of two, sometimes of three quadrupeds. These may be either horses, ponies or mules. Very often one of each species is represented. The only rule is that the biggest animal goes between the shafts. The smaller beasts walk meekly on each side, fastened only to one shaft. If it is winter, all three are covered with bright red blankets. If it is summer, with nets edged with knotted fringes to keep off the flies. Sometimes, if it is very hot, a cotton sheet is added. The quaint trappings of these animals add to the picturesqueness of the whole turnout, for the essential part of the Tuscan harness is a wooden saddle which all horses carry, and which is finished in front by a high brass-covered horn, studded with nails, and hung with little bells. Besides these adornments, the sides of the saddle, the breast-strap, and the breeching are decorated with bright-coloured tufts of red or blue wool, while the strap between the horse's eyes, and very often the tufted breast-strap, are set with tiny mirrors of silvered glass, of all shapes and sizes. Occasionally also a fox's tail or a wild boar's tusk may hang at the cheek-strap, and a pheasant's feather is fastened between its ears, while, if we were to make friends with the driver and persuade him to allow us to examine the saddle closely, we would be almost certain to find, under the trappings that cover it, a fierce-looking blue eye painted on the wood, outlined by deep gouge marks, which are coloured a bright red. The discovery of this eye would make us suspect, especially if we knew anything of folklore, that the contadino has some other motives in view than mere ornamentation, when he decks the harness of his mules with tiny looking-glasses, pheasant's feathers and tufts of wool. And so it is, for Italian peasants have a great fear of the powers of darkness, and a firm belief in witches and the evil eye. Therefore, as they must travel many a lonely mile on country roads, they deck their horses with amulets, with bells and looking-glasses, tufts of wool and foxes' tails, in order to frighten off these unhallowed spirits, and above all they stamp an evil eye, which is always supposed to be blue, on their own belongings, thus rendering them impervious to malign influences from outside. The contadino is very mindful of the comfort of his team, for as we see, every animal, be he horse, mule or pony, has a deep rope basket full of hay fastened to his headgear, and as this basket hangs down just in front of his nose, he can take a mouthful whenever he halts for a moment. Many of these men, especially those whose barocci are laden with wine or oil, hold the position of fattore or steward on large estates in the country, and they are on their way to the wine or oil merchants, with part of the produce from the vineyards or oliveyards of which they are in charge. In bygone days, when every Tuscan landowner of any pretensions had his palace or mansion in Florence, the wine and oil from the estate were brought direct to the family house in town. There it was sold retail by the portinaio or porter, 
generally an old family retainer, through a little window which opened by a sliding panel close to the great door of the courtyard. Nowadays, however, the great nobles and gentry have their townhouses, for the most part in Rome, and their Florentine mansions have passed into other and less aristocratic hands. So the fattore is obliged to take the products of his well-tilled land direct to the dealers. Sometimes the baroccio is drawn by a pair of pure white Valdechiana oxen with long straight horns and black noses. Although they are so big, these animals are unequalled for gentleness and docility, so much so that their driver guides them, not with a rein, but with a wave of his hand, and they can turn and twist so cleverly that they are used in preference to horses in ploughing among vines and fruit trees. The writer will never forget her wonder, as, when she was going one evening with some friends to the Certosa of the Valdema, which lies about two and a half miles from Florence, she saw a peasant ploughing his little strip of vineyard which lay on a hillside with one of those huge animals. The patch of ground was so little and so steep, moreover, it was terraced, and fig and mulberry trees grew in it, as well as vines, and as the animal turned and twisted, so that the little plough behind could go close to the roots of the trees, it seemed as if its weight must bring everything down, earth, trees and vines, in one great avalanche. It is interesting to note that these Valdechiana oxen are really the old breed of Roman cattle, the milk-white steers of which we read in history. While we have been studying the Baroccio and its contents, its driver has probably been slaking his thirst at one of the lemonade stalls, which are to be found at almost every street corner, or if it chances to be the season of the cocomero or watermelon, he might have brought his team to a standstill beside the stall or barrow, where slices of that luscious fruit can be obtained. If this is the case, we speedily find that a cocomero stall can be quite as picturesque in its way as a baroccio, for the colouring of the fruit makes it valuable for decorative purposes even on a street stall, and the cocomero vendor seems to have an eye for effect as well as profit, for he has cut a number of watermelons into thick round slices, which he has hung on the framework of his stall, where the rosy red discs set in their circle of cool green rind, show up like great peonies as one approaches. On the stall itself are wedges of melon, each laid on a separate vine leaf, which passes with the piece of fruit into the hands of the buyer, and can be used as a plate or napkin. On a corner of the stall stands a great green earthenware basin, full of vine leaves covered with water, in order to keep them fresh till they are needed. This basin also serves, alas, as a receptacle for the soldi which the stallholder receives, and which, when change is required, he hands out wet, but comparatively clean, to the next buyer. By and by the watermelons will disappear, along with the rest of the autumn fruits, and all sorts of nuts will take their place, walnuts, hazels and chestnuts, especially the latter, for chestnut trees grow luxuriantly on the hills at the foot of the Italian Alps, and their fruit forms the staple food during the winter, not only of the peasants who live under their shade, but also of many of the poor in cities as well. The chestnut harvest is the most important event of the year to the hill folk, and when the first frost of the season has come, 
about the feast of St. Martin, they beat down the nuts with poles, and gather them in sacks and baskets. The finest they sell to agents who come from distant cities to purchase them for confectionery firms, to be turned out later as marron glacé and such high-class sweets. A large proportion are dried by the peasants over slow fires in huts built for the purpose. They are then ground into farina dolce, or sweet flour, which is either stored for household use or sold. Then the more enterprising of the mountaineers set off to Florence and neighbouring cities with the remainder of the crop. There they establish themselves till after Christmas. Sono arrivati i buzzuri, the chestnut men have arrived, is the common remark in the city, and a welcome sight they are to everyone, be he rich or poor, for even to the rich, who can roast their buzzuri and eat their castanaccio and necci at home, the sight of the glowing charcoal brazier over which the chestnuts are roasted in the streets is a cheerful sight in the dreary wintry days, for in November and December even the city of flowers can be chilly and dreary enough, while to the poor, who can for a few soldi buy at the chestnut stall a good handful of piping hot nuts, which they can either carry away with them or eat while they linger round the glowing brazier, the comfort and value of this humble fare is untold. Nor is it by the roasted nuts alone that the butsuri cater to the wants of the populace. In the little shops which they have taken, and which serve, so to speak, as their headquarters, their wives or sisters are busy from morning to night, cooking the chestnuts in various ways, and baking delicious and wholesome cakes with chestnut flour. Here we can buy not only roasted nuts, but bolite, or boiled as well. These are lifted out of huge copper cauldrons, where they have been cooked with fennel to improve their flavour. A favourite preparation is chestnut flour, boiled like porridge, until it is so thick that it can be turned out, a stiff chocolate-coloured mass, onto a wooden board, where, when it is wanted, it is cut in slices with a string, and either eaten hot on the spot, or carried home to be fried. The most common varieties of cakes are castanaccio, which is made by filling a shallow copper tray with dough, over which is sprinkled aromatic pinoli, or kernels of the cone of the stone pine. The tray is then placed in the oven, and as the copper retains its heat for a considerable time, the castanacci, when they are baked, are often carried in their tins out into the streets, especially onto the bridges over the Arno, where they are sold in slices to the passers-by. Necci are smaller cakes, which in the country at least are baked between flat stones, which have previously been heated in the fire. When we are visiting the shops of the Butsuri, we are certain to come across those of another very interesting class of men, the charcoal vendors. We generally find them in cavernous cellars, into which we peep with a certain amount of hesitation. The interiors are so dark, and the proprietors so begrimed and fierce-looking, yet here we touch a very important branch of industry, for were it not for the charcoal burners of the Apennines, whose fires we see far up over our heads, if we chance to travel by night by the base of these mountains, and their agents who sell their produce in the city, the Florentine housewife would be in a very awkward predicament indeed. For as all coal that is sold in Italy is imported, Charcoal is used for all cooking purposes, and in a great measure as the principal means of heating as well. 
oak is the wood that is most commonly used in the production of charcoal. When the trees are felled, the branches and trunks are cut into lengths, and bound closely together in heaps of regular size, in such a manner that a square cavity is left in the centre. This cavity is filled with carefully prepared firewood, which will ignite easily. The heaps of wood are then covered over with brushwood, earth and turf, so as to exclude all air. But before the last turf is laid on, and the whole pile, as far as may be, hermetically sealed, a burning stick is dropped into the firewood in the centre, so as to set it alight. When this has been done, and the aperture closed, the fire, which owing to the lack of air burns very slowly, is allowed to do its work undisturbed for several days, at the end of which the earth and turf are removed. And if things have gone rightly, a heap of blackened charcoal is found, which is ready to be sent down the mountainside for use in the cities. Things do not always go as smoothly as this, however, for if the pile happens to be badly built, or the covering thinly laid on, the wood may burst into actual flames instead of smouldering, in which case the entire heap is spoilt. Ordinary firewood, sawn into logs, is sent down from the mountains also, especially from the forest of Vallombrosa, and sold to burn in open fireplaces. Another useful article of fuel which can be purchased in those dark recesses are small round cakes, known as forme, which are made of the refuse from tanneries, and serve the same purpose in Florence as briquettes do at home. Large fir cones are also sold for firelighters, and form a very ornamental form of firewood. But to return after this digression to the street stalls, when the butsuri have sold all their store of chestnuts, and the brightening sun and lengthening days make charcoal braziers seem a little out of place, our eyes are refreshed by brilliant patches of orange and lemon showing here and there, and we find stalls piled with these fruits, while branches of their glossy foliage are twisted round the framework, changing the bare boards into regular bowers of green. When the first touch of spring is felt in the air, the flower-stalls and the flower-girls with their baskets appear everywhere, in the market-place, at the entrance to churches, on the steps of lodges, in the doorways of hotels. Their stock-in-trade varies with the seasons. First come snowdrops and primroses, then jasmine and primula, cassia and flaming tulips. At Eastertide we find countless varieties of lilies, lilac, violets and hyacinths. In early summer and in early autumn as well, gardenias, roses, irises, verbena, heliotrope, dahlias, carnations. Then, later, chrysanthemums, margarites, and geraniums which go unblooming till Christmas. On the fruit stalls, cherries and nesboli, a Japanese plum, replace oranges in April and May, to be followed by apricots, figs, medlars, cactus fruit, pears and peaches. And so the year comes round again to the time of the cocomero and of the luscious grape, which, however, is as little thought of as gooseberries are at home. But to see the flowers at their best, we must go on a Thursday morning to the Mercato Nuovo, which is close to the Piazza Signoria, and can be reached by the Via Porta Rosa. This market, which was built by Bernardo Tasso for Cosimo I, about the year 1547, used in olden days to be the principal mart for gold and silk, 
two of the valuable commodities for which Florence was so famous. Today it is celebrated for the Tuscan and Leghorn straw hats which the peasants bring from their country workshops and sell under its open roof, for the masses of flowers and flowering shrubs which on certain days of the week are piled against the grey pillars of its loggia, and above all for its bronze boar, that porcellino or little pig, on whose back the little boy in Hans Andersen's fairy tale had such a wonderful ride through the gallery of the Uffizi and into the church of San Croce. The pig, which is found at one side of the building, is represented as raising itself on its front legs, and out of its mouth flows perpetually a stream of cold fresh water. The bristly animal, which was cast by Pietro Tacco, and is a copy of an original marble now in the Uffizi, is beloved by the people of Florence, especially the children, for they have nothing to do when they are thirsty but to clasp him round the snout, and bending back their curly heads, quench their thirst at the cooling stream. It is worth while buying in this market one of the delightfully flexible leghorn hats, which can be obtained here at small cost, but for which so much has to be paid at home. These hats roll up like a roll of calico, and can be packed with the utmost ease, and at the end of a long journey will come out as fresh and tidy as ever. Straw plaiting is, as we shall see when we visit Fiesole or Signa, quite an industry among the women and girls who live in the villages on the outskirts of Florence. The straw is grown on Tuscan soil, and when it has been properly prepared and cut into lengths, is sold in bundles to country women who, with the aid of their daughters, plait it into narrow plaits and sell it by measurement to a merchant, who either turns out the hats in his own little factory or resells the plaited straw to milliners in the city. Very often, as we are wandering round this market, we come on a scrivano or public letter writer who has established himself in some quiet corner ready to indite epistles for simple men and women, country folk most of them, who have not mastered the art of writing for themselves. One of the greatest charms of Florence is the way in which we can watch arts and crafts of all kinds being carried on if we know where to find the craftsman. I suppose no one visits the city without bringing home some souvenir in the shape of leatherwork, embroidery or jewellery, especially ornaments set in turquoises or in the curious green-tinted stone known as the matrix of the turquoise, which are a speciality of Florence. The shops in the larger streets as well as on the Ponte Vecchio and along the Lungarno, are filled with these articles, and very beautiful they are. But they acquire a new value after we have crossed the Ponte Vecchio, and turning to the left have wandered along the Borgo San Jacobo, and have entered the workshops there, and seen the master craftsman and his journeymen and apprentices hard at work, in much the same way as the craftsmen of the Middle Ages worked, in whose botteggi the geniuses of the Italian Renaissance learned the rudiments of their art. Such workshops can, as we know, also be seen on the Ponte Vecchio, and doubtless in other parts of the city as well, but it was in the Borgo San Jacopo, just after one turns round from the old bridge, that the writer saw them to best advantage. As one walks along the street, one only sees the tiny little front shops, with their open doors and windows, crowded with articles, fashioned of delicately tooled leather, or emblazoned vellum, or with jewellery, or richly chased gold and silver vessels, most of which are intended for the service of the church. 
but if we enter one of these shops, we find that another door at the back leads us into a large airy workroom, well supplied with windows, which overlooks the river. Here the actual work is being carried on by neat-handed craftsmen, clad in linen overalls. We watch with breathless interest a jewel being set, or a chalice or arms-dish chased and embellished, or some quaint design traced in glowing colours on the vellum page of some illuminated missile. And these are not the only people who are to be seen at work in the Borgo San Jacopo. There are other and humbler occupations which are carried on almost in the open street, for a great many of the little shops which we find farther on have no doors at all, during the day at least, and their owners carry on their business in what looks like a series of open sheds. Here we find a cobbler sitting on his stool on the pavement in front of his tiny bottega, cobbling away as fast as he can, and exchanging confidences with his next-door neighbour, who is a carpenter. The bench of the latter stands across what, presumably, is his doorway, and the curling shavings fall into the street, and are gathered up with great glee by a couple of curly-headed urchins. Next we pass a blacksmith, standing by his anvil, while in the dark recesses of his tiny smithy a heap of charcoal embers are dimly smouldering. Across the street we find a bottega di fornaio, or bake-shop, and here we may see curious circular cakes being put into an enormous oven by the help of a long spade. Close by the bake-shop a woman is engaged in cooking fritters. Next door but one we find a coppersmith beating a huge copper vessel into the shape that he requires. Presently a tall figure appears in the middle of the street, with a large vessel shaped like a very fat water-bottle hanging from his waist by a strap. Pesci d'Arno, he cries as he walks along. It is one of the Renaioli from the Arno, selling his catch of fish, and if we know enough Italian to be able to enter into conversation with him, he will tell us that the strangely shaped vessel is in reality only a zucca or gourd, which he himself has grown in his cottage garden and moulded into its present form by resting it on a board when it was growing in order to make it flat at the bottom and tying a tight bandage round it near the top in order to constrict it at the neck. Then, after it had attained the proper shape and dimensions and had been cut from its stem and ripened and hardened by being left lying in the sun for a time, he made it watertight by cutting off the top and pouring a little boiling pitch into it and turning it round and round in his hands until the whole of the inside was coated by the pitch which formed a kind of watertight glaze the zucca is an exceedingly useful vegetable as it will grow in any corner of waste ground so it is cultivated largely by the country folk who not only find a ready market for it in its natural state but who make great numbers of vessels like that which we have seen the Renaioli carrying, and sell them in the poorer parts of the city, where people buy them instead of crockery, filling them with rice, beans, macaroni, salt, etc., and hanging them from the rafters in their kitchens. We do not find much of the beautiful Florentine embroidery and handmade lace in the Borgo de Jacopo. To obtain that, we must once more cross the Arno, and go to the little shops which we find under the stone arches at the base of the great mansions that look out on the Lungarno or to those more pretentious sales rooms in such streets as the Via Tornabuoni or the Via Calzaioli. 
The embroidery is only sold in these shops, however. It is executed by women and girls in their own homes, and as we pass along some side street, we often see a group of them sitting on the doorsteps, or on stools on the pavement, chatting and laughing together, as their busy needles fly in and out. Most of these women have been taught their craft by nuns, under the auspices of a society known as the Industria Feminile, or Women's Industries, which society is well worthy of support, for in view of the fact that a great number of the slum children in Italy begin life as professional beggars, and are apt to continue in the same vocation when they are grown up, this society endeavours to get hold of young girls, and give them a thorough training in all sorts of fine needlework and embroidery, so that they have a trade at their finger-ends, by which they can earn their own living, or at least help to do so. The Industria Femenile is an association, entirely undenominational, formed of ladies, Italians and foreigners, for the encouragement of home industries. A branch of this association is to be found in most Italian cities. It undertakes the sale of the work produced, without the intervention of the middleman. Ladies in country districts organise and instruct in the revival of local forms of home work, such as weaving, embroidery, lace, basket work, etc. Two special exhibitions of work so produced are held in Florence, one before Christmas and one at Easter. End of chapter 5